thrilled to have on Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Uh, Rabbi Jacobson is one of the or the premier Jewish thinker and speaker in the Jewish uh, world today. Uh, he speaks to thousands across the globe, serves as, as a mentor to many, many people. Um, he was the first rabbi ever to be invited to the Pentagon to deliver the religious keynote to the U.S. military chief of chaplains at the National Security Agency, the NSA. Um, he's been over, over you know, the pandemic. He presented hundreds of classes to every demographic, all over the world. So like literally he has been someone who has been able to inspire millions. He is the founder and uh, serves as the dean of the yeshiva.net. Um, his website, which is his virtual uh, classroom where people can go and be inspired. And just when you when you get a chance to, to hear him, you can really see how he cultivates this sense of purpose, this sense of importance for every single person to reach their greatest potential, and in the process of doing that, has been able to serve as a light to so many people. Well, this is a big kickoff, Robert. I'm thrilled to uh, be partnering with you on this project and uh, have such an illustrious guest for our uh, our first one, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Uh, what a pleasure. What what stuck out for you when you, when you were uh, speaking with him today? Well, first of all, having him is, uh, I'm really honored that he joined us, but also just the type of person that he is, whose really mission in life it is to inspire change in other people is such a fantastic way to kick all this off. The knowledge that he imparted and shared with us, not just about his personal story, but also about how much he thinks that other people have the, the, the potential that everyone has really was really quite inspiring to me. So I'm, I'm really excited that we got to do it and hopefully people will enjoy it. And I, and I think that the idea that this is sort of like our first episode, the, the, the piece that's so important is that these are a lot of the fundamentals that, that, that you see, that I see when we are kind of beginning on the process of like, you know, again, a, a world changing mission, really biting off like a difficult problem to, to chew on and to solve is that you have to have some of these fundamental mindset pieces in place so that you can identify yourself as someone that can go out and do that, and then also be able to actively engage in the process and then come out on the other side with the solution. Yeah, things like having faith in yourself, right? Not getting lost in your problem and understanding to look intrinsically. And then sometimes when the problem does seem too big and knowing that you know God actually has faith in you, like these are really fundamental ideas. So uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to grab, I don't know, pencil or some kind of recording device so that they can uh, take notes during this. And uh, I really hope you enjoy the episode. This is Changemakers, the podcast exploring ideas changing the world and the people behind them, hosted by Robert Reichman and Jacob Webb. First of all, Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for, for taking the time. This is a, we're starting this podcast between Jacob and I, um, and you're our first guest. And there's an agenda here. The idea of this podcast is to highlight change makers, talk about what they're trying to do and accomplish, what drives them to actually try to achieve that thing that they want to achieve. I am focusing on what's the idea? What's the mission? Why are you doing things the way that you're trying to do it? Try to understand that. Jacob, uh, is an executive coach, and he's much more focused on what is driving the person. Tell me about you. Why is this the idea that you want to do? And the goal of this is to yeah. try to inspire other people 
to try to understand themselves, focus on their idea, focus on, you know, we're all sort of caught up in our own silly little world, focusing on the silly things in people's lives and instead focus on the change makers to inspire them to be change makers themselves. The first question I would start off with saying is, you know, Rabbi Jacobson, what is your mission? I once saw a line, actually, my wife sent it to me, I guess she saw it somewhere, that love is learning the song in someone else's heart and singing it to them when they forget it. And I think at the risk of sounding a little too poetic or dramatic, you know, I think one of the most transformative teachings of Judaism, at least for me, is that really every single person has a song and it's a unique song. And I think part of my mission statement is to learn the song in other people's hearts and to sing it to them when they forget it. I like that. It's, it's beautiful. So if I, if I could ask, knowing now that you come from the home of a journalist and now that I see how that is such a close, a close connection, did you ever see, I mean, as, as someone that consumes uh, large amounts of media and Jewish media, you are the, uh, the titan of the industry, thank God. Did you ever see this for yourself? And what is this that you see? Like in terms of like taking all of your, your co-hosts and the things that you care about, like how did you figure out this, this level of expression? Great question, great question. So I grew up in the home of parents, both Russian refugees. They both grew up in the 1930s in the Soviet Union, in the horrific days of the communist regime, suffered under the tyranny of Stalin. And uh, my grandfather was in the purges of 1938. He was arrested, sentenced to death, and then tortured and sent to the Stal Stalin's gulag. And both of my parents were deeply affected by you know, their most formative years in the shadow of such suffering and agony that affected them immediately and directly. But they made it out, the both families made it out of the Soviet Union with false, false passports because Stalin allowed Polish citizens who escaped into Russia during the Second World War to leave the Iron Curtain. So they both made it out with forged documents and they made it to the displaced person camps. And then ultimately they made it to Canada my father's parents, and then my mother's parents, the United States of America. And my father, I guess for more than 50 years of his life, was that quintessential Jewish journalist. Jewish journalist. He was the correspondent of Israel's largest daily, Idiot Akronot, in the United Nations. He actually succeeded his good friend, Eli Wiesel, who went into full-time lecturing and authoring books, and but really was a journalist for many years. So he gave over that job to my father. They remained very close friends. My father worked for the Herald Tribune. He worked for Newsweek. He worked for a Yiddish daily for many years. There were large Yiddish dailies called the Day Morning Journal. He was the front page editor. And then in 72, he opened up his own Yiddish weekly newspaper called the Algemeiner Journal. So basically our home was extremely colorful. I mean, the types of people that would come, guests, Jews and non-Jews of all demographics, all different political persuasions, uh, you know, you had people like Professor Abraham Joshua Heschel from uh, Jewish Theological Seminary to people like, you know, Elie Wiesel and uh, from all different walks of life. It was really very fascinating both to, uh, to meet all these people. So it was really a very open exchange of ideas. I never anticipated to do what I do today uh, when I was younger. I was, uh, I would say, a good student 
very diligent. I, I sat and learned for, for many years of my life. Uh, I also had the privilege um, growing up at the feet of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Anil Schneerson. And when I was at a young age, uh, my brother schlepped me into a, short, a small group, a very interesting group. They were called the Oral Scribes. Lubavitcher Rebbe would speak for many hours on Shabbos and holidays. Of course, in the Orthodox world, no recording devices were present. So everything had to be memorized and transcribed. So there was this small but very intense team of minds that had to memorize and then transcribe it after Shabbos and the holidays. So I was really immersed a lot in learning and writing and and uh, delved into that, uh, you know, for, for many, many years. And uh, this type of work really, I have to say, it came unexpectedly. It was, I wasn't married yet. I was maybe around uh, 24, 25. And I get a call one week from a rabbi in Highland Park, Chicago. He read an article that I wrote, a Yiddish article that I wrote in my father's newspaper. I would write a weekly article in Yiddish on the parsha on the Torah portion of the week. And he liked it. And he said, would you come speak to my community for Shabbos? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't give speeches. I don't speak to community. I don't know what to tell your community. I'm, I'm a yeshiva bacher. I'm a yeshiva student. I don't know how to do this. And he's like, I'll pay your ticket. I'll pay $300. I'll pay your ticket. I said, it's irrelevant about paying the ticket. I'm not coming. And he nudged and nudged and nudged. And I came. And I spoke to this community on Shabbos. Very, very progressive, modern, a lot of secular Jews in that community, very affluent, Highland Park, Chicago. His name is Rabbi Shanowitz. And uh, apparently the people liked it because the next Shabbos, I got a call from a rabbi in Great Neck. Would you come for Shabbos to speak to our community? And the rest is history. So really, I wasn't expecting, I wasn't anticipating, wasn't the life I planned, but organically, um, it just emerged. And at some point, at some point, as the years started to progress, I realized, I realized that there are ideas and experiences that I'm passionate about. And as I once heard from the late Rabbi Dr. Professor Jonathan Sachs, he said, when your passion meets a real need in the world, that's where God's calling for you lay. And I think that's what I came to realize, or to put it maybe in different words, there are two very charged words in the Bible, in the Torah, that are identical with one little difference. The word Vayiker, Vayiker Hashem el Bilam, God chanced upon Balaam. There's an identical word with one added letter, an Aleph, Vayikra Hashem el Moshe, God called Moses. And the difference is Balaam and Moses both experienced something. Balaam saw it as a coincidence. Vayiker, in Hebrew, Vayiker means a chance coincidence, a random event. Moses looked at the same coincidence and he saw it as a calling, Vayikra. So I think in all of our lives, we will see different things and then it's up to us to choose and to label it either as a just interesting coincidences or as a calling. And I think at some point when I started to meet people and travel a lot, I traveled to hundreds and hundreds of communities. At some point I realized that all of my training, all of my education, all of my learning, all of the gifts that God has, has given me in life is really a calling. It's a calling to help people, help our brothers and sisters, each one in their own way, become ambassadors, ambassadors of love, light, hope to change the world. 
I appreciate that so much. One one thought, which is interesting, because I was actually thinking about Rabbi Sachs when you were speaking about your your close proximity to the to the Rebbe, and how you know there was that moment where the Rebbe really empowered him and said, "You go back to England and you become that 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 factor of change." And it sounds like did that that almost you you found it. He didn't direct you there, but this was like was it was it interesting for you? What was it like seeing? him give, and I don't know if he did or not, but giving certain people like direct, go do this, and versus you that that almost chanced upon this amazing opportunity, the skill set that you right. have. And sort of came so it's a great you. question. It's a great question. So I grew up and I would listen to the Rebbe's teachings, his classes, his sermons, his presentations. They called it Fabrengens for 15 years, 15 years, almost every single Saturday, almost every single Shabbos and every single holiday. And he was not a rabbi who gave a 12-minute 12, 12 speech with a joke in the middle, a joke in the beginning, a story at the end. That was not what it looked like. These were hour-long presentations, very deep, very intricate, uh, really weaving a tapestry and a mosaic of all segments of, of Torah thought, uh, Jewish law and biblical studies and Talmud and Maimonides and the code of law and Musr and Ashkafa and Kabbalah and Hasidism and spirituality and psychology and sometimes science and physics and current events and education it was very, very intense, extremely intense. And they can go on literally for hours. He had no notes, but it can go on literally for hours with some breaks for singing in between. So I never really thought that I'm going to be somebody who's going to be mentoring or teaching or traveling or lecturing. But what I always heard from him for many, many years is that the greatest tragedy in life is when a person does not recognize his or her infinite potential. The greatest tragedy in life is when a person looks in the mirror and says, who am I? What am I? He always taught that much more than we should fear our darkness, much more than people fear their darkness, people fear their light, their power. People are not ready to really embrace the possibilities that are embedded in them. And he really believed this. For him, it was like a tragic situation when people did not realize that they are fragments of infinity. They are rays of God in this world. They are manifestations of the sheen of the divine presence. And they are ambassadors of God who at their core are invincible and are filled with incredible, incredible possibility and potential and promise. So I really grew up with that message almost embedded in my DNA. <laughs> in terms of my Jewish education. And it's interesting because now I share it sometimes. I share this to communities and people say, you know, it's so interesting because the way I grew up, I was taught that, you know, you should stifle, you should stifle your creativity because your creativity can be dangerous. It can, it can lead you away from God. It can lead you away from religion. You know, just, just follow the good moral path that has been carved by, by, my, by your ancestors. And it's so interesting to me because my education was the exact opposite. Of course, follow the path of your ancestors and learn from them. But make sure to remember that, you know, we're all born originals. We should not die as copies. And, and it's so important to realize that you, every person, he would, might, he would always teach this. Every person is an indispensable, unique note in a cosmic symphony. And the world is waiting for your, the world is waiting for your music. So I think, you know, having that ingrained in me, when I realized there's an opportunity here, when I realized there is a longing, there is a thirst, I had no choice but to say, this is a calling. 
And to run away from this calling would be running away from maybe the purpose of my creation. So and could I ask I didn't you a few want questions? To spend the rest, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life asking the question, why? Why did I not live up to my calling? So let me ask you a question, because I, I, I mean, you and I know each other for quite, quite a little while, and we've spoken a lot about your particular product and approach. Like, I, 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 I love this area of like philosophy where we talk about the time that we're born, the particular things that we're supposed to accomplish in our life. I think that there's something very unique about what you do versus most of the other places that people go to for their inspiration and direction. And I'd be really curious to hear color you have about what today's world needs and how you fill that role. Cause you were sent at a particular moment in time uh, yeah. to fulfill a particular thing. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> it's, I always take inspiration from that line in the Megillah, the book of Esther, which I always thought was an incredible line. You know, Esther doesn't want to go into her husband to plead for the Jewish people because she says, my husband is a crazy, drunken tyrant. And uh, if I go in without permission, I come out with a head shorter. And, and Mordechai gives her that one line that is historic. He says, Mi odeya im kazos lamalchos. Who knows, dear Esther, if it's not for this moment that you have become queen. All the years that you're here in the palace, because she was a queen for many years, it was all created. All the circumstances were created for this moment, this very risky moment of tremendous fear and ambivalence. This is the moment when courage is needed because it will, it will change history. And when Esther hears this, Esther hears this, she gets it. It cuts through her probably like a knife and she's, I'm going, I'm going in. If I perish, I perish. And the Jewish world has that moment to thank for our continuous and successful existence. And I think each and every one of us needs to be able to hear that powerful message that Mordechai told Esther. It's not a coincidence that I am here at this moment of history, in this place, with these gifts, with these resources, with these challenges, with these traumas, with these vices, and with these virtues, because of a unique mission that I have to play in the grand cosmic drama from Sinai till Mashiach, till redemption. And I think in, in, in our situation, we live in a world that is progressive, progressing and transforming itself, not decade by decade, not even year by year. Now it's month by month, and now it's week by week, and now it's day by day. I think the changes that we have experienced over the last 100 years are far more dramatic in scope and magnitude and depth than the way society has developed over thousands of years. So the way things are changing in such a rapid fashion in areas of medicine, biology, science, physics, psychology, spirituality, health, geopolitical components, mental health, the issues of mental health, pedagogy, education, and literally every area and every industry, finances, spirituality, art, and so forth, and everything in between is dramatic. And I think that Judaism, which is God's blueprint for humanity, has to be able to compete on that level. 
intelligent people are exposed today to incredible, incredible, powerful ideas in quantum physics and science and psychology. If Judaism remains much more primitive and underdeveloped, there's no way that a real intelligent, spiritually sensitive person can appreciate what Yiddishkeit is unless we can articulate a Judaism that really is not just competes with other ideas, but it's the blueprint of the creator that encompasses all of science, all of physics, all of psychology, all that we know about cosmology, astrophysics, biology, medicine, and all of the progressive forces in our world, Judaism can anchor us and can give us a blueprint for world transformation to usher in a consciousness of organic oneness, a consciousness of, of, of infinity, a consciousness that allows the world to experience itself for what it really is, where we can cleanse the doors of, of perception and see reality for what it really is from a Jewish perspective, which is really a manifestation of divine energy. And I think that things like today, vulnerability, honesty, confronting our traumas, our skeletons, our demons, which were not discussed some time ago, dealing with our marriages, with our children in a very vulnerable and honest way. This is the only way you can really influence people today. Repression and suppression, which we have been very good at for many, many years and maybe served us well, really is not working today. So what I find is that the calling of our time is we really need to be able to spit out and confront our insecurities, our fears, our traumas, our pettiness, our divisions, our, fragment, our sense of fragmentation. People cannot live anymore with a narrow, fragmented view of reality. We are too sensitive spiritually. And I think this age is a tremendous opportunity to introduce the infinite, expansive view of Judaism that can encompass all of us with all of our weaknesses, with all of our virtues and all of our challenges. Can I, 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 I love that answer so much. And it was so beautifully, I, I, was, I was, so you essentially are at the precipice and if I'm sure you see yourself, but I will put you on here that you have to essentially present a Judaism that is so much broader and you are presenting a Judaism that is so much broader than any of our ancestors ever had to deal with. And from the lens of the fact, I, I work with lots of rabbis, I work with lots of executives and I find that the thing that holds people back the most is this imposter syndrome. Who am I to do this? Oh my gosh, I see that there's this need. I know technically speaking, I might have some, but I'm not qualified, I'm not ready yet. Nobody, nobody taught me how to do this piece. The way that I can help is just my little zone of genius. That all, So what perhaps if you could share, was there a moment in your life where you really experienced this like, oh my gosh, is there someone else to do this? No, <laughs> how did you overcome that? Yeah, excellent question. I still suffer. I still suffer from this syndrome. And I'll tell you a little personal moment I had. When my lecture started to become popular and I started to get a lot of invitations, I called my older brother. His name is Rabbi Simon Jacobson. I interviewed him. He's, He's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and I said, Simon, I'm having a crisis. Last night, I spoke to an audience. There were Holocaust survivors in the audience. There were people in their 80s, in their 90s, who have been in Auschwitz who have been in Birkenau, who have been in, in Bergen-Belsen and Matthausen, who have lost their families. Where do I, Y.Y. Jacobson, have the chutzpah 
and the audacity, a spoiled brat who grew up in New York, our greatest crisis in life was when we lost the keys to the car or some other crisis. Where do I come preaching and pontificating and sharing wisdom with people who are triple my age, who have been around the block nine times? It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And he responded to me, and I think these were wise words, authentic words. And he said, why, why? You're right. If you're going to be sharing your own brilliance, your own experiences of life, your own wisdom, you should be embarrassed to not speak to Holocaust survivors. Go home and speak to yourself or people who want to hear you. But if you realize that you're not 30 years old or 25 years old, whatever the age was at the time, but you're really 3,000 years old because you're trying to be a humble channel for the wisdom of Torah, for the divine wisdom that was articulated in Torah. Yes, you're going to present it in your own way. You're going to try to channel it through your brain and through your heart and through your cerebral and visceral resources. But ultimately, you're a humble student of Torah and you're an ambassador for your people and for the wisdom that the Torah has given your people in the world over 3,300 years ago. He says, then you don't have to be embarrassed. Yes, you are an imposture. You are, you are channeling the best and deepest spiritual wisdom of our heritage. And the moment you can embrace that humbly, then you're good. And I still, I still share this with myself almost every time I get up to speak. Every time, every time you get to speak, you have that. I'm not going to say every time. I don't want to lie or exaggerate. But almost every time, especially when it's a serious talk, I ask myself, why in the world do I have this job? Couldn't I be a car mechanic? Okay, I'm not really handy. But I probably could have done some other stuff with my life. And there's a combination of guilt and fear and insecurity. And I really have nothing to say. I'm in any way in a bad mood now. It's like, I just want to go to sleep. I want to take a shower and go to sleep. I don't want to speak now to 4,000 people, tell them how to live. I don't know how they should live. I'm trying to figure out how I should live. These types of questions and dilemmas come up, you know, and uh, they, they, they come up very often. And it's those moments where I have to breathe in very deeply, <laughs> take a deep breath and say yes I have my trauma, I have my toxicity, I have my insecurities, I have my dysfunction, I have my things that I have to work on, but right now I have an opportunity, call it a coincidence or call it a calling, right now I have an opportunity to touch the hearts of people and communicate to them a genuine message that I know at my core is real, is authentic. So instead of surrendering to despair and cynicism and cowardice and fear and all the other stuff that I can easily surrender to, and then spend a lifetime figuring out why I'm suffering from all this, I should rise to the occasion and realize that right now I have a choice to serve as a divine ambassador to God's children, to be able to kindle sparks and uplift hearts and help them see themselves in ways that they may have not seen themselves before. And I take the plunge. So let me ask you a question because I, Jake, Jake this, is, this is why I love talking with Jacob about things because he asks about the person and I am not as nice of a guy. I don't know what it is. I, I'm so focused on the problem. And in, our, in, the, last, in the last question, you, were start, you started talking a bit about the problem. But, but like, Robert, in today's world, the problem and the person have merged. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're all, yeah. We haven't well, figured that out yet. Yeah. There's no, no spirituality totally. without psychology. There's no philosophy without psychology. There's no science without psychology. 
No, 100%. And you know what? The, the basis of modern physics is the observer and his or her vantage point redefines reality. <laughs> matter is a derivative of consciousness. Consciousness is not a derivative of matter. Max Planck, father of quantum physics. Matter is a derivative of consciousness. So if you're not addressing the person, you're not addressing the reality. The reality is based on the person. This is, the why I need, this is why I need Jacob. You know, what, would I, what would I be without him? But the, the, I guess the question that and I you know have what? is- And I'll tell you with rabbis, with, I told this to a rabbi today. I said, the days of a rabbi getting up at the pulpit and giving this powerful, cerebral, well-packaged sermon, I love it, but those days are gone. People want to see my heart. They want to see my truth. They want right. to know who I am. So people, I, ask, people ask me like, why, you know, like, oh, what synagogue are you a part of? I'm like, I wanted to talk to Jews. So I didn't want to be in a synagogue. I go outside of it. <laughs> but the question is just understanding. I think you started alluding to the nature of the problem of where people are at today and what people need, which is what you're sort of talking about now and what you're trying to provide. But maybe let's, I'd love to hear stepping back, like, what is broken and how do we fix it? That's, that's my world. I'm a product guy. I only think about what's the problem and how can we fix it? And everything you're talking about is a part of it. But you know, we've spoken a bit about some of the stuff that you're working on through your platform, what you're trying to create. I'm talking maybe even a bit more macro and then we can go micro, but like, what's the problem that, that you really worry yourself with and you alluded to it and how do we fix that? I would identify two points out of many, but I think two critical and, and pretty vital points. One has to do with Judaism and one has to do with us. <laughs> and again, the two are very much intertwined, of course. In terms of Judaism, I think that many of us cannot handle any more Judaism that is very narrow and very petty and very small-minded and not necessarily small-minded in a bad way, but very tribal, very parochial. People who are open, who are longing, who are sensitive, who are spiritual. And today there's many, many such people, people of larger souls. They need to feel that Judaism has within it the blueprint for transformation of, uni of the universe ability to change the landscape of the planet, to introduce a new consciousness. If Judaism cannot be articulated and taught and experienced in that way, not just in the brain, but in my gut, I have a visceral experience of Judaism as something that really allows me to operate on a level of consciousness that allows me and us individually and collectively to become real divine ambassadors the way God intended it at Sinai when he gave the Jewish people a mandate to change the world. Teach me how Judaism can help me change me and as a result of that, help change the world. That has to be articulated. It has to be a taught. This is a Judaism that requires deep spiritual awareness, deep spiritual sensitivity, seeing the macro and the micro fused together, because let's face it, for many people, Judaism is very nitty gritty, very technical. It's all about ritual and details and nuances, and you did this wrong and you have to do it this way, which is all important. It's part of the extraordinary mosaic. But imagine you tune into one cell in the body and you fail to see that this cell is part of 80 trillion cells. Imagine you tune in 
to the gene, but you don't realize that this in this genome, you have the code, the genetic code, which is a blueprint, a manual for the entire organism. So in Judaism, when details are divorced from the big picture, and the big picture is divorced from details, we're missing really the living organism called Yiddishkeit, called Judaism. So that's, I think, one level. And then is one other element. And this is one that relates to mental health. The way I put it is, it's the story of the Afikoman. For hundreds of years, we hide the Afikoman at the beginning of the Seder. In a good, we put it away in a good hiding place, under the couch, under a pillow, in the bookcase. And then our children at the end of the Seder come, find the Afikoman, expose it, reveal it, and then we could finish the Seder. Somehow I feel that everything that we have hidden away for decades, for centuries, for millennia, our Afikoman, our children and our generation are bringing it to the fore and showing it to us and saying, here it is. Instinctively, we want to run to the hills. We're like, no, no, no. The Afikoman has to stay hidden. But our children, our youth are telling us, Tati, Mami, if you want to finish the Seder, if we want to get out of Egypt, if we want to emancipate ourselves, and if we want to declare together next year in Jerusalem, we have to be able to look at our Afikoma. We have to be able to face all of our fears, all of our traumas, all of our wounds, all of our skeletons that we have magnificently suppressed and repressed over many, many years. Today, people are allergic, allergic to a Judaism that cannot encompass and serve as a guiding light of how I could confront my deepest mental health challenges, individually and collectively, the stigmas that once existed, the inability to have honest conversations about our downers, about our low points, about those things that we're really not ready to face. I think our children today are forcing us to look at the Afikoman. And if we, leaders, teachers, rabbis, educators, mentors, pedagogues, parents, are not gonna rise to the occasion and grow up and be ready to face all of our fears with compassion, but with honesty, we're going to fail a generation that's really longing for that type of fusion, for that type of integration. If I could, if I could just ask a little bit about that last piece, which is, I think, on the other side of the imposter syndrome, once you see what's possible, once you have this vision of what's available, and then again, to realize that a, you have this very large platform, but really the platforms that everyone on is like the tip of the iceberg because there's millions of people out there that are Jewish and don't know this stuff. And then there's billions of people out there that this would be so relevant for. And this is like the healing salve that ultimately like we were kind of meant to bring to the world. Oftentimes it's like, whoa, so like what really is possible? And so I see on the, on the other side is when you start to get this image of like, whoa, that's a really big image. How do you keep yourself sort of grounded and both thinking big while at the same time staying somewhat normal? Excellent, excellent question. You're such a sweet interviewer. I really appreciate that. <laughs> this is great for me. Thank you. <laughs> it, it is really, it's really a great question. This, uh, I spoke with Robert about this quite a few times. Listen, whenever a person is blessed with, with vision and with initiative and with creativity and with resources, there is that very powerful frustration 
of not doing enough, not achieving enough. There's that good Jewish guilt. Really, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to sit down to eat lunch. I'm going to take a walk with my, with, with my wife. We got to change the world. But I think, I think, I was telling once a Hatzalah guy who drives the Jewish ambulances to the hospital, I said, you know, you need a few minutes every day to learn Torah. And he said, I don't have time. I'm saving lives. And I said, you know, there was a guy driving an ambulance. He was driving a patient to the hospital. And the passenger says, hey, we got to stop for gas. And he said, we don't have time to stop for gas. We have to save this patient. And of course, you know the end of the story. They broke down on the highway. The patient was not saved. They could not get him to the hospital. They had to call another ambulance. I said, you know, if you don't have the gas, you cannot save anybody. The only way we can affect the world is if we really, really affect ourselves. Change always begins inside of me. Change is always very internal, very real, very authentic. So if I say, you know, I don't have time for the small stuff. I don't have time for my kids. I don't have time for my wife. I don't have time for me. I don't have time for my community. I'm busy changing the world. It's futile. It's empty. It's really laughable. It, it, it's ridiculous. Because we're not talking here about slogans and commercials and, you know, cynical Madison Avenue <laughs> statements that, you know, will just convince you to go spend more money on my product. We're talking here about very authentic, authentic awareness of each of us coming closer to our own innermost spiritual core. If I am not a transformed person inside, all my words, all my statements, all my sermons will ultimately pro prove to be futile and ineffective. So that's why focus always has to be, how real is this? How authentic is this? What do my own relationships look like? What does my relationship with God look like? What does my relationship with my wife look like? What does my relationship with my children look like? What does my relationship look like on a day-to-day -day basis with the people I meet in the street or in my office or in the synagogue or in the supermarket? And only when we really manage to conquer our own inner demons and skeletons and manage to defeat our own fears and to transcend our own insecurities, and I'm talking about myself first and foremost, then by osmosis, can there be a ripple effect that's much more real and authentic? There's no such a thing throwing in a rock into the water and expecting a ripple effect everywhere else besides in the space of the rock. No, right here is the first effect. And then it can travel further and further. So just to reiterate- really a nuclear reaction, huh? To reiterate what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that the way that you are, so, the, the vision will, will expand, but what you're always primarily focused on is, is again, saving, you know, putting on your oxygen mask first. And how do, you, how do you live a life in integrity with yourself where you're getting the things that you need? And if you have, again, because you, you can know what you need. So if you're able to take care of that, and then if you're sort of plugged into your bigger picture and you're working on getting yourself out of your own way and just kind of stepping into it, ultimately you can have faith that you will get to wherever you need to get to and have the effect that you need to Yes, Jacob, but I think it's one step deeper than that. If I'm plugging in, if I'm trying to plug myself and humanity in to that source of divine electricity, which is really the mission, so then my inner work and world change is really one and the same thing. Because if we're plugging into a place of oneness, that oneness 
includes me, it includes you, and it includes every human being living on this planet. It certainly includes every Jew, and it really includes every living creature. It includes the entire universe, the oneness that pervades the entire universe. The famous expression of Moses, Enod there's nothing outside of divine oneness. So if I'm really trying to plug in to that oneness, it will automatically right begin right here with me. And if I'm not plugging into that place, then not only will I not, am I not changing the world, I'm not changing me. So it's really, you're trying to touch a place where we all become connected, where we all become one. And when we're aligned with that indivisible oneness, then the macro and the micro are fused in very powerful ways. Amazing. Robert, I know I, this is a little I, abstract. I know this is a little abstract, but I think I, I think this it. is very authentic. I love it. Robert, do you want to uh, fire the last question at the rabbi? I apologize. I dominated quite a quite a quite a bit of time here. What what are your thoughts? This is great. I'm just taking it in. I, I would love to hear and really give you an open forum to maybe maybe finish it off, but let me frame it a bit. So the idea of this podcast is what we call change makers. And the idea is to highlight somebody who's affecting change and what drives them and what their mission is trying to do and inspire other people to try to do the same in their own life. I think the last question really helped, I, to me, concretize this idea that, you know, there's the interchange and then there, there's the outer change and they're probably one in the same. And normally the things that I struggle with or the things that I think about and that I'm worried about are the things that I wanna impress on the world as well once I do a better job of refining that within me. So maybe taking that sort of idea, I'm curious if there's a message that you have as it relates to you as a change maker that you can then superimpose to everyone else to take with them. Beautiful, great questions, you guys. We should hang out more often. Tell me when. Uh, Anytime. There's, there's a beautiful meditation that every Jew says right when we wake up. First moment we open our eyes, before you check your phone, remind that, remember that, before you brush your teeth, there is that mantra called Moda'ani. Moda'ani lefanechem alechai v'kayim shechazarta b'nishmati b'chem l'rabba Which is basically, I thank God for giving me back my soul to be able to live another day. But the last words are strange. Great is your faith. Great is your faith. What am I telling God? That he's a faith? That he, that he has faith? That he believes in God? Thank you. What does this really mean? It really comes from the Torah. Moses says at the end of his life in Deuteronomy, God is a God of faith. What type of faith does God need? I mean, if he's God, he probably knows that he exists. Do I need faith that I exist? I need faith that God exists. What does it mean he's a God of faith? So one of the most earliest uh, Talmudic text is called the Sifri. It predates the Mishnah and the Talmud, one of the old Midrashic oral interpretations on the Torah. And the rabbis say an unbelievable statement. You know what it means? God is a God of faith. Shehemin ba'olamo ubaray. He had faith in his world and he created it. And for me, what that statement means is that very often in life, what Judaism is telling you is God believes in you even when you don't believe in yourself and even when you don't believe in him. In fact, I would say, what does it really mean to have faith in God? It doesn't only mean to believe that God exists. And if I don't believe that God exists, what's going to happen? He's going to melt. He's going to revert into nothingness. If your two-year-old child says, Tati, you're stupid. You're not my Tati. You're, you're, I hate you. 
okay, what happened? If you melt, you say, oh, he's so cute. Why is it that when we say we don't believe in God, God is really offended? And the answer is because what it really means to believe in God is to believe in me. To believe that I am manifestation of infinity, to believe that I was conceived in love, to believe that I'm not a random mutation, to believe that I'm not an infinitesimal, insignificant, valueless blimp on the surface of infinity. It means to believe that my life is purposeful and meaningful and that I am an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and authenticity and wisdom and redemption. So the first thing we say as Jews in the morning is, Thank you for giving me another day. Rabba Munosecha, great is your faith in me. To be able to get out of bed and to stand up and to know whatever comes, to, whatever may come today to my doorstep, any curveball, any conversation, encounter, business meeting, any mood, any thought that may enter into my head, to be able to have that underlying paradigm that even when I don't believe in myself, God has faith in me, faith in my goodness and my purity and my truth and my idealism in my core that is untarnished, invincible, indestructible. That creates a different type of day. And this is what I would share. I would, I, I would share with my constituents, with my students, with my brothers, with my sisters, with my friends. And that is, even when you're not believing in yourself, that's fine. But remember that God believes in you. Wow. Well, that, that's a really, really fantastic message to end off. And you're probably one of the unique people that are able to end off in a message that both summarizes, I think, yourself and your mission and the message that you want to give to other people. So that is a really fantastic Thanks. message. We really appreciate you joining us and spreading Thanks. the love and the light and all the good Thanks. stuff. Thank you very much, Rabbi. It was a My pleasure. honor and privilege. Thank you for the opportunity.